This is a disclaimer and trigger warning. The topic I'm going to be covering today is extremely sensitive. I will be inserting audio clips along the way that are bound to make you uncomfortable, and the story itself covers themes including mental health, cult activity, religious abuse, death, and unfortunately the list goes on. If you know for sure that you're going to be triggered, this probably is not the best episode for you. If you decide to keep listening, please feel free to stop if it gets too much at any point. I'm not very worried about the amount of plays it gets, but it is a story I have wanted to discuss for a very long time and for a lot of reasons. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people with their lives have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial, no man lay, takes my life from me, I lay my life down. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. Same as ange, comme ça l'est. I know it's been a while. That's a story for another episode that I'll do on things I wish I knew before starting a podcast. For today, this is a redo of the Jonestown episode, which is easily my favourite episode I've ever done, but couldn't leave it up for various reasons. This will be the first episode of my cult and religious crime segment, which is the area of true crime that I find the most interesting to analyse, and next to Waco, this is the case that really made me look into similar crimes. Now, I know you're waiting for the Chris Benoit episode, and yes, that is done for the third time, but it actually fits into a three-part series now, which will come out over the course of three consecutive days, so you will get that next week. Anyway, now that we're all caught up, let's begin. I'm going to start with a quick summary of what happened and why Jonestown is so infamous. So Jonestown, which was formerly known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project, was a settlement or compound, if that's what you'd prefer to call it, in northwestern Guyana. Their leader, Jim Jones, led the people to their deaths in what some consider as a mass suicide, but I and many others prefer to call it for what it is, mass murder. 918 people in total died that day, but only 909 died in the temple. I'll explain that part later. This happened on November 18th, 1979. The state is special to me in some ways because my birthday is November 18th. Even though I'm not very superstitious, I feel like my birth date has a lot to do with why I feel so strongly connected to the case. That is the day that I associate with life and thinking about nearly a thousand people dying under those circumstances is something that has always stuck with me. I decided to cover this case because it's something I've done a lot of research on and watched every documentary available, I think, but I've never done anything with the information or spoken to many people outside of my family because it's not really one of those things you just drop into a conversation. Let's start with looking at Jim Jones because he is pretty much the genesis of Jonestown. I'm going to skip going into him too much though because my main focus is how the combination of religion and communism ended with death. If I'm being honest, I truly believe that he started off with somewhat okay intentions, but it ended up with him dying as a murderer and frankly a coward. 
Jim Jones was born in Indiana on May 13, 1931. He grew up poor, which almost gives a possible reason as to why he became so fascinated with socialist ideas. He studied Marx, Stalin, Gandhi, Mao, and Hitler. He also became extremely interested in religion, and this combination brought about some teasing from kids at school. Kids at school aren't the greatest, as I'm sure we all know. It's also important to note that Jones accused his father, who was a World War I veteran, of being part of the Ku Klux Klan. As the story goes on, you'll notice that Jones felt very strongly about racial integration. These days, that should go without saying, but it was a different story back then. At 20 years old, Jones began attending Communist Party USA meetings. He wanted a way to demonstrate and practice communism in response to communists being ostracized. Back then, that was understandable considering how communism manifested itself and the ensuing Cold War, another topic I would love to cover eventually. Can't have any time to say the word communism in this episode. Okay, back to being serious. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for the last couple of years of high school, I went to an American school and on top of fire drills, we also had to do bomb drills, which were pretty serious. So I can only imagine back then what our parents or even grandparents generations were doing in schools when it came to you know nuclear bomb drills it's a bit crazy to to think of that but that was a massive fear at the time so this ended up with him starting a church it was a way for him to combine those interests but also create a safe place for people who believed in the same things that he did as well as people of other races who felt like they didn't belong he did actually succeed in this because by the end of it all 68 percent of the people's temple were african-american anyway this all ended up in the creation of the people's temple christian church full gospel a mouthful i know so That's how the church itself started. Jim Jones was pretty much Superman to black people back then. That's really the best way I can describe it. He did everything to fight for them and to protect them, really to everyone who was discriminated against. Uh, Everyone was welcome in the congregation. You see, back under Governor Brown, the blacks and the Indians and the Mexicans were about to get together. And the foolish people, and Governor Brown talked it over, because I've got one, Rapine is administration, it's in our church. They talked it over and said, we're going to have to divide these people, so we'll say the Mexicans can be called white. And the Indians can be called white, and we'll call the blacks Negro, because if we don't, they'll get together. But honey, you better still look. You better still look. You Mexicans are still being treated like niggers, so you better recognize who you are. He and his wife also became the first couple to adopt a black child in Indiana. They also adopted three Korean-American children, a half-Native American girl, and so forth. So you see how he could be seen as a hero. In hindsight, it feels like a very disgusting thing to say, but it's just how people viewed him at the time. We will come back to Jones because he is pretty much the center of the story and it's his madness that led people to their deaths. Now, the church was in Indiana, but Jones traveled to Brazil in hope of opening a new temple there out of fear of a nuclear holocaust. On the way there, he passed through Guyana for the first time. He spent his time studying the economy and testing the waters with the racial minorities there. Now, there might be earlier instances, or some people might think it's a bit later, but for me, this is where I think Jim Jones is starting to act a little bit shady. 
During his time in Brazil, he pretty much hid that he had any communist beliefs or ideologies. The main reason was because of Fidel Castro, but it's always suspect when something is built on dishonesty. Under the circumstances, I suppose it's not that big of a deal to some people, but it's a split-second look into the sinister side of Jones. He eventually returned to Indiana because the church was starting to collapse without him. Not long after, the church moved to Northern California because Jim Jones had told the congregation that Indiana would pretty much be destroyed by nuclear war. There doesn't seem to be anything that explains why he thought this or what evidence he had to support this. It's just what he wanted to do, like a lot of the things that you will hear in the story. Over a couple of years, the church grew to a point that they had to open branches in LA, San Francisco, and San Fernando. This is also the first time that Jim Jones definitely started tweaking. That's the only way, again, that I can describe it. I'm sure that he started taking drugs later on, but he was definitely starting to go mad with all the power he had and still wanted. Actually, I don't think anyone knows the exact time he started taking drugs. He pretty much rejected Christianity at that point, which was the supposed foundation that he built the church on. He thought that the Bible was oppressive towards women and anyone who wasn't white, which I don't know about you guys, but to me is quite funny because actually, do you know what? Episode for another day. The craziest part about it, he started saying he was a reincarnation of Buddha, Lenin, Gandhi, Jesus, and Father Divine. I remember something about him saying, if you see me as your god, I am your god. If a clip doesn't play next, I probably didn't find it. I said I had to give people a little bit of truth. They've seen too many miracles and they're all up in seventh heaven and they're saying, oh, what Jesus is doing through him. What Jesus is doing to him. Nobody does a thing to me, honey. It's me that does it. One thing I also forgot to mention is that it wasn't until later that he started outright using the word socialism. He initially referred to it as enlightenment. Look, there is no way this can ever be covered in one go, which is why so many documentaries and texts exist covering different parts. So... There is a lot that I am leaving out. I would suggest you go and read up if you're interested or watch some documentaries. I'll post some links in the information part of this episode. It will definitely lead you down a rabbit hole though. Now something I have just realized is throughout the script, because yes, I do have a script. It's not really like fully written out. It's got notes and everything. But I have been using the words socialism and communism interchangeably. I do know they are different things, and I do know the differences between them. However, when it comes to sources, including Jim Jones himself, he flip-flops around the two as well, so it's really difficult to know what he actually genuinely believed and what he stuck to. So I'm just referring to it at whatever point the research was talking about in the story. Moving on. While in California, Jim Jones built relationships with local politicians. Inevitably, with a church growing as quickly as People's Temple and the weird ideology behind it, not everyone was looking at the temple through rose-coloured lenses, as you shouldn't with any religious establishment. Many publications didn't facilitate any articles about Jim or the temple because of his political ties. However, Chronicles reporter Marshall Kilduff took his expose on the temple to New West magazine. 
and this was actually the catalyst for the move of the temple to Guyana. The expose included details of all sorts of abuse against former members of the temple. It holds a lot more weight when it's coming from people who were actually in the temple. He put it forward to the congregation as a, you know, as religious persecution, blah, blah, blah. You know how it goes. In reality, he was running away from media attention and investigations. But this is my take on it. No matter whether you are someone who thinks he wasn't doing anything wrong or he was doing something wrong, no matter which side you stand on, there would be no need to run if nothing was happening. But we all know that definitely was not the case considering how he was beginning to act. Running away didn't really help for a couple of reasons. The first reason was David Kahn. Kahn was someone who had pretty damaging information about false healings, various crimes and abuse to members by Jones and his sidemen. I know there are better and more respectful words I can use for them, but genuinely I have no respect for them whatsoever, so his top people will go as his sidemen, and that's how I'll continue to refer to them. David handed over this information to two different authorities and four journalists, so in the end it was definitely going to come back to Jones, whether he was in the country or not. Another reason which I'm sure must have come to mind for you is how the family of temple members felt about this. I'm referring to the family who wasn't part of the church. How would you feel if your sister or son, or any member of your family joined a place as notorious as the People's Temple, and then suddenly upped and left to another country and could not and did not want to have contact with any of you. Wouldn't you be worried? Because I know that I would. Jim Jones spoke a lot about choice, but the reality is that the members were not allowed to leave the compound. I know I'm not the only one who thinks that's kind of sus. What's the harm with leaving? Are you scared of them not returning or are you trying to contain a bigger monster? This is where things go sideways, as if they weren't already. Let's start with the members themselves. The utopia they envisioned was really just a mirage, a dream, a sham, whatever you want to call it. It was segregated by gender and children, so families didn't even live together. It was overcrowded, they were overworked in the blistering heat that was the Guyanese weather. Things I forgot to mention, the settlement in Guyana was already being built when the news of the expose reached Jones, so the move was pretty rushed. It was in the middle of the jungle and not equipped for the amount of people who ended up leaving the temple in California to Guyana. He also constantly preached on loudspeakers throughout the night. It's giving very boot camp vibes. It just was not pleasant. Of course, many people wanted to leave, but that was out of the question. It's not like the surrounding jungle was any help. Now, back in the US, things were starting to play out. The combination of reports being handed over to the police and families of the temple members in Guyana being worried led to Congressman Leo Ryan deciding to take a trip to the settlement. He was the US House of Congress representative from San Mateo, California. He had been directly contacted by an old friend of his whose son died only a couple of days after coming to visit, and that's highly worrying. What was happening in the camp 
that would cause this. Congressman Ryan, by many accounts, was the type of person to directly put himself in a possibly dangerous situation in order to investigate. He really had a heart for the people. Just reading about him makes your heart break even more for his fate. He ended up deciding to take a trip to Jonestown and he went with his advisor, an NBC film crew and concerned relatives who had not seen their family members or heard from them in however long they had been in Guyana. Now, obviously, Jones did not want them to come, but it was really a catch-22 situation. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Think about it. Him not allowing them in would validate the idea that something less than Rosie was going on and that people were likely being held captive, or at least the ones who wanted to leave. But if he did let them in, he then runs the risk of being exposed by those who want to leave or who were suffering just being there. As we know, he decided to let them in. As someone researching, I think about how maybe if no one had gone to Jonestown, those people might have been safe. But the more I learn about Jim Jones and I actually watched the documentary that featured his son, I've come to realize that they would have eventually met the same fate. What a lot of people don't know is that Jim Jones started using more heavily at this time and he started speaking about this revolutionary suicide. I don't know how suicide can ever be revolutionary. That's besides the point. But as it is with everything, saying something and doing something are two completely different things. I should note though that they had actually practiced this revolutionary suicide. Because we are not committing suicide, it's a revolutionary act. We can't go back, they won't leave us alone. They're now going back to tell more lies, which means more congressmen, and there's no way, no way we can survive. Jim Jones went on to warn or threaten members not to say anything, and I think for most of them, he didn't even speak a word because they knew not to cross him. Fast forward to Congressman Ryan and his entourage arriving. They were welcomed, and for the daytime that they were there, everything seemed absolutely peachy. But in the night, they were at this gathering slash party, I suppose, and someone slipped Congressman Ryan a note with a list of people who wanted to leave. And this is the moment where the veil truly fell. Jones got Aggie and said, fine, if you want to leave, leave. By the way, he found out because someone snitched. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. We've been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed. I don't really have any um, opinion on the person who snitched. I know a lot of people, as I've watched videos on it, have said, you know, if it weren't for this person, or why would that person do that when they knew that others were suffering? When you're in a cult environment, normal thinking doesn't happen the way that, or doesn't happen as easily as it would for people outside of that environment. Christine, you're only standing here because he was here in the first place. So I don't know what you're talking about, having an individual life. Your life has been extended to the day that you're standing there because of him. Now, it obviously wasn't as smooth as just leaving if you want to leave. But the next day, when the congressman and his crew and now all the defectors wanted to leave, they were escorted to the airstrip. The shady part? 
The temple members who were the escorts were actually quite well armed. As soon as they got to the airstrip, they radioed back to base to tell them and the others went about their business, getting ready to board the plane. And that's when they got the command. Bullets started flying. What's going to happen here in a matter of a few minutes is that one of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot and down comes that plane into the jungle. And we had better not have any of our children left when it's over because they'll parachute in here on us. Many people were wounded or escaped into the jungle, but five people did die on the tarmac that day, and one of them was Congressman Ryan. What is really sad about this is that there was definitely some foreshadowing. When the defectors and the crew were getting ready to actually leave and loading their belongings onto the vehicle, Congressman Ryan decided to stay behind for a bit in case anyone wanted to leave. During this time, someone actually tried to slit his throat. They didn't succeed, but that's when he knew they were in danger and left with everyone else. Unfortunately, his fate was sealed. That's why the death toll I gave you at the beginning is higher than the actual number of people who died to quote-unquote suicide because some were killed on the airstrip as well as a few temple members who were in a nearby town called Georgetown. So that's where the dying starts. And it feels very icky to me that I even have to say that. This next part is going to be a little bit distressing because of audio, so you can skip ahead when it comes to that or just stop listening, but thank you for listening this far if you have. Jim Jones summoned everyone to the pavilion where the services would happen and he told the members of the attack and told them that because of it, they would no longer be safe. He was extremely erratic, which you will hear. What you're also going to hear is that not everybody wanted to die. You have to understand everything is happening so quickly, but he's saying when they come out the sky, they'll shoot all our innocent children and babies and it goes on. I think that there were too few who left for 1,200 people to give them their lives for those people that left. You know how many left? Ooh, 20 odd. That's, that's a small 20 odd. Come, come, 20 come odd. Pat, pat 20 odd. But what's going to happen when they don't leave? I hope that they could leave, but what's going to happen when they, when they don't leave? You mean the people here? Yeah, what's going to happen to us when they don't leave, when they get on the plane and the plane goes down? As long as there's life, there's hope. That's my faith. Well, some everybody dies. Someplace that hope runs out because everybody dies. I said I'm afraid to die. I don't think no you means. are. I don't think you are. But uh, I look at our babies and I think they deserve I, to live. But I still think as an individual, I have a right to you do, and I'm listening. what I think, what I feel, and I think we all have a right to our own destiny as individuals. Right. And I think I right. have a right to choose mine and everybody else has a right to choose theirs. There was really no choice. While he was preaching, Flavorade laced with cyanide and Valium was being prepared. You have to move and the people that are standing there in the aisle go stay in the radio room yard. But everybody get behind the table and back this way, okay? There's nothing to worry about. Everybody keep calm and try and keep your children calm. 
Now, I know there is this massive misconception that it was Kool-Aid. Now, I don't know if that's because it's catchier to say or people just didn't really know what it is, but Kool-Aid and Flavor-Aid are two different things, although they are similar, but it was actually Flavor-Aid. When it came time to take it, he wanted the children to go first. They were forced to drink the concoction through syringes that were forced into their mouths. A third of the people who died that day were children. Then it was the mother's turn to go. My opinion is that we be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly. And then everyone else. But if anyone tried to get away, they would not have been able to anyway because there were guards with crossbows, which is it, unbelievable. And guns. You can literally hear the people taking ages to die in the audio. Calm, let's get calm, let's get calm. Two us. We had nothing we could do. Must be insane. Children, it's just something to put you to rest. Oh, God. Now, you don't need to know much about chemicals to know that cyanide poisoning is not a quick death. I'm not saying the idea is noble in any way, shape or form, but if he truly believed in what he was saying, which I personally don't think he did, he would not have chosen the most vile and painful way to die. Please get us the medication. It's simple. It's simple. There's no convulsions with it. It's just simple. Just please get it. Before it's too late, the GDF will be here. I tell you, get moving. Get moving. Get moving. At the beginning, I called him a coward. Reason being, everyone else or the majority of people had to drink the flavor aid. And how did he die? He shot himself. Now that I've told the story, the question is, what went wrong? It's been a pleasure walking with all of you in this revolutionary struggle. No other way I would rather go and give my life for socialism, communism. And I thank that very, very much. Thank you so much for coming along with me on this mini journey. It is a lot to take and it is very disturbing. I know that I said you would be doing good by doing some research or watching some documentaries, but if that's not for you and you have any specific questions about Jonestown or anything to do with it, don't hesitate to ask. My social media will be linked in the information part of this podcast episode, but it is at Miriam Claudine on both Twitter and Instagram. You can also use the voice uh, mail feature on Anchor if you'd like to, and I can create a segment where I respond to voicemails from different episodes that might actually be easier but it's all up to you and I will get back to you when I can. That's all for now. I'll be back with you very soon. Bisous!